Far more is that place where we begin to dream things far more than we could ever think, ask, or imagine because we realize that God can do far more than we could ever dream. We're hitching our hearts to the dream that God has for our lives, and it's exciting, isn't it? It's exciting to watch people begin to dream. I've had people since we started this series, which was the first Sunday we were, we were actually here, and they've been coming in and saying, Pastor, here's the dream. Here's what God is doing. Here's what I'm sensing God is putting into my life. And God has begun to stir something up inside the hearts of his people. And he's, and he's using even past hurts to say, I'm not going to waste your hurt. I'm going to do something with that. I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to use you to touch lives. And the Lord is saying to us that it's time to quit living out of our memory and it's, and it's time to start living out of our dream. The memory can be good or bad, but we can't live in the past. We've got to live in what God wants to do. And our key verse in this series has been Ephesians 3.20. It says, Now glory be to God, who by His mighty power at work within us is able to do far more than we would ever dare ask or even dream of infinitely beyond our highest prayers, desires, thoughts, or hopes. And this series is based on one critical assumption, and that is this. God is a dream-giving God. He's a dream-giving God. God created you for a dream. He has a dream for your life, and it's a dream that is far more than you could ever ask, think, or even imagine. He found Moses on the backside of the desert because he had a dream for his life. He plucked David out of a sheep pen uh, because he had a dream for his life. He put Esther in the palace because he had a dream for her life. He brought me from the rolling hills of Missouri to the plains of Kansas to the high mountain deserts of Idaho and Nevada to the low country of South Carolina and finally here to Marion, Arkansas because he has a dream for our lives together. And he brought you to Restoration Life Church today because he has a dream for you because God is a dream-giving God. But here's what happens. Life has a way of downsizing our dream. Life has a way of shrinking our dreams down to the size of our circumstances. Don't let the enemy tell you that yesterday's nightmare has to be relived over and over and over again. Uh, Hear me this morning. God is a dream-giving God who can do more than you could ever ask, think, or imagine. And yet, and yet, there will be times where the dream seems dim. There will be moments in your life where the dream is vibrant and full of color, But there are other seasons in life where the dreams seem sketchy and uncertain and gray. But what do you do when you get a dream from God and yet you're in a season where it doesn't seem, where it seems like the dream is nothing more than an illusion? Have any any of you been there? What do you do when the dream is dim? What do you do when the divorce papers land in your hands? What do you do when the plans you make simply just don't take root? What do you do when the business isn't booming but it's busting? What do you do when addiction is still knocking on your door? What do you do when the dream is dim and it seems like the dream is about to die? What do we do then? Now, if you're normal, you're going to have these seasons. I mean, here's what I found out over the years. I found out most people, you know, like when they're getting married, number one, They don't anticipate problems. You know, they think they married the queen of the universe. And then they find out they just married a woman. (laughs) That's all right. They think they married Prince Charming. And later they find out that really you are more like a cartoon character. The dream gets a little sketchy, a little fuzzy. Have you been there? Amen. 
What do you do in those seasons? What do you do when the dream seems like it's about to die? Well, the first thing you have to understand is that even though you have a God-given dream, there, there are going to be seasons when you're, you might be riding in the belly of the whale wondering how this dream is going to come through. What do you do in those times? Think about dreamers in the Bible. How dim did David's dreams seem when he was living in caves and running for his life from a king with a, and he's living with a group of rejects? How dim did Abraham's dream seem when he took Isaac to the top of the mountain with a knife in his hand and the wood for the sacrifice, but nothing else for the sacrifice except his own son? How dim did Moses' dream seem every time he went before Pharaoh and Pharaoh said, no, you can't go. How dim was Paul's dream when he, caught up, when he was caught up in a storm and he was shipwrecked and he was bitten by a snake and he was left for dead, and yet he said, God has a dream for my life. How dim is your dream this morning? Dreams, dreams go through period where they seem dim. And I think God allows it to happen to make sure that we make sure that we're not trusting in the dream, but we're trusting in the dream giver. Yeah, amen. Amen. He lets the dream go through the season where he, it seems as if there's no possibility of fulfillment. He, he lets it go through those seasons where it feels like nothing more than an illusion. I heard a man one time say, if you can hold on to a dream for five years, it'll come to pass. He said, the reason most people's dreams don't come true is because they can't hold on long enough. Well, I'm going to tell you something. Julia vouched for me on this, but we've had to hold on to some dreams a whole lot longer than five years. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to you know, I'd like to call him up and say, hey, you need to revise your, your book here. For, for some of our dreams, it took, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years. We were married for 12 years before the dream of being parents finally became a reality, but it all happened at just the right time in our lives. But you got to hold on to the dream. Habakkuk 2.3 says, For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. The NIV that I, I'm reading from, uses the word revelation where the King James verses, uh, uses vision and you, could use the, you and I could use the word dream. Though the dream waits for its appointed time, though it lingers, though it seems like it's not happening, wait for it. Don't give up on it. The dream is, is there even though it's lingering. The dream is coming. There is a day marked on the calendar of heaven when your God-given dream is going to come true in your life. Your job is to hang on until it happens. So, so what are you going to do to hang on? How, how are you going to tie the knot at the end of the rope and hang on? Let me give you five ideas. All from Matthew 27. Turn there this morning. I want you to see it. This is Jesus standing in front of Pilate, Matthew 27. We're at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus is standing before Pilate. Judas has betrayed him. The disciples have abandoned him. Peter has denied him. And here Pilate is questioning him. He came to save the world. And now he stands in front of the governor and he's about to be crucified. Do you think maybe the dream looks pretty dim at this moment? Yeah. Look at verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Let me give you the first key in holding on when the dream is dim. Number one. Maintain your identity. Say that with me. Maintain your identity. Say, maintain your identity. You see, in this moment, Jesus doesn't look much like a king, does he? There's no royal robe. 
There's no crown on his head. There's no scepter in his hand. There's no palace. There's no royal guard. He's been betrayed. He's been denied by those closest to him. His own people have turned him over to the Romans so that he could be sentenced to death and killed on a cross. He looks nothing like a king. But when Pilate looks at him and says, Jesus, they tell me you're the king of the Jews. Are you really the king? Jesus' answer is swift. His answer is sure. His answer is certain. And Jesus says, yes, it is as you say I am. I am the king. So you're the king. Where's your robe? You're the king. Where's your ring? You're the king. Where's your kingdom? Have you told Herod, by the way? I just saw him at the palace this morning. So you're the king. Why are you standing? If you're the king, why are you standing here about to be killed? Let me get this straight here one more time. Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say. Now, this has to be confusing to Pilate, but it makes sense to Jesus because Jesus understood one very important principle. That is that your identity is not determined by the moment. Your identity is determined by God. In that moment, Jesus doesn't look like a king, but the moment does does not determine who he is. It doesn't matter if the Jews recognize him as king. It doesn't matter if Pilate recognizes him as king. It doesn't matter if he dresses like a king or not. It doesn't matter if anyone bows down to him as a king. It doesn't matter if every person on earth says he's not the king. He knows who he is. He is the king because he is the king. And that's his identity no matter what. And when your dream seems dimmed, you know, skeptics are going to come knocking at your door. And you've got to maintain your identity. You are not defined by your situation. You are not defined by your circumstances. You are not defined by what someone else's opinion of you might be. You maintain the identity that the Word of God says about you in that moment. Don't, listen, don't let somebody with a big mouth talk you out of your identity. Oh, oh, that's just Joseph's boy. He's just a carpenter. I remember him. He built a table for me once. Can, he, he, now he thinks he's some big shot rabbi. Can you believe that? It's never going to happen. Listen, don't let a big mouth talk you out of who God says you are. Don't let somebody with little, bit, little faith steal your identity. Like Abram, who later became Abraham. He walks up, oh, that's Abram. Here comes a crazy old Abram. You, do you know what Abram means? Abram means exalted father. Put in today's language, it means big daddy. (laughs) All right? The problem was Abram didn't have any kids. And and so, you know, they, they think he's crazy. So one day Abram says, God told me to change my name. Oh, What are you going to change to, Abram? I'm so glad you finally came to your senses. You're going to stop calling yourself Big Daddy when you have no kids. And and, and he looks at him and says, yeah, I'm not going to be Big Daddy anymore. Now I'm going to be Big Daddy of a multitude. (laughs) Oh, he's still crazy. No, he's not crazy. He just has faith. He calls those things that are not as 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 though they are. Listen, people with big mouths and people with little faith will talk you out of your identity and they'll steal your dream. Don't let the situation that seems hopeless rob you of your dream. Pilate may may be confused and the crowd may be angry, but it doesn't change the fact that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They don't need to believe to make it true. Jesus was the only one who needed to know it. 
The circumstance does not have to line up with the truth as long as the Bible says it. Jesus is the king. They asked, are you the king of the Jews? He says, yes, it is as you say. He doesn't turn and say to the crowd. He says, hey, what, what do, who, who do men say that I am? He's already had that conversation. He's not turning, looking to Peter and saying, hey, Peter, you remember back there where you, where, where you said what other people said who I am? What was it that they said? Who did they say I was? No, no, no. He knows who he is because he knows whose he is. And he says, yes, it is as you say, I am the king of the Jews. So my question for you today is this. Who are you? Who are you? Your bank statement, if it's like mine, says you're poor. Your report card, it might say you're dumb. The enemy whispers in, the ear, in your ear and says you're finished. Let me ask you, who are you? Well, I know who I am, and I'll give you a hint. It's the same answer for you. I am the one who has been born into the kingdom that cannot be shaken. I am the one whose father speaks with thunder and rides on the wings of the dawn. I am an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ Jesus. I am the redeemed of Christ, the portion of God, the product of grace, and the offspring of promise. I'm a child of God. I'm a homeowner in heaven. I'm a conqueror in everything I do. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And though I am made of the fle a flesh, I am dead to my flesh and alive to the Spirit of God. I'm the one whose spirit was dead but has been raised to life by the same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. The power of the Holy Spirit lives in me. The purpose of the Father guides me and the promise of Jesus sustains me. I don't care who you say that I am. I don't care what I used to be. I know who I am. I belong to Him. He belongs to me. I am He and He is mine. And so are you. Maintain your identity. Yeah. Know who you are. And whose you are, so that when the dream is dim, you know who, to whom you belong. Let me give you a second thought. Number two, let God defend you. Let God defend you. Look at verse 12. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Jesus did not argue his case. How much did he reply? Somebody answer. How much did Jesus reply to the charges? None. Not at all. Here are the charges. What's your answer? Silence. He understood the situation and he decided to let God defend him. Yeah. Yeah. He, he could have said many, many things, but he chose to hold his tongue. Now, it, it's not in the text, but I've, I've got a theory because I've got an active imagination how many remember the many times that the religious leaders of Jesus' day brought charges against him? They tried to trick him. They tried to snare him. And, and then he always turned those things around and turned it back on them. And they had to walk away with their heads hanging low. You remember all those times? Well, they knew that Jesus was wiser than they were. So they had been embarrassed more than once. So they had to make sure their case was airtight. So what they did was they hired people to come and bring false charges against Jesus. Oh, yes, I saw him working on the Sabbath. Oh, yes, I heard, heard him say he was going to tear the temple down and rebuild it. Oh, yes, I heard him blaspheme. I saw him do this. I saw him do that. I can almost see them huddled late at night with the candles burning and the moonlight streaming in. And they're having a conversation. All right, now what are we going to say when we get Jesus before? 
before, before Pilate. What are we going to do? If we say this, then he's probably going to say that. And they're, they're just, you know, writing out their arguments, trying to figure it all out, plan it, trying to plan it out. And, oh, what do you think, chief priest? And, and, and I think maybe they're having this little pre-trial debate. You play Jesus, and I'll play the prosecutor. And so they're preparing hour after hour after hour. But in the end, they have all this plan in place. But what, they, what does Jesus say? Nothing. They get all worked up. He did this. He did that. Now, now, what do you have to say, Jesus? Well, you know what? Listen, I lived on this earth for 55 years. And I've discovered an important principle that I want you to write down. I want you to remember this. You got it? Ready? Don't argue with crazy people. <laughs> because if they're crazy, you can't win. Because they don't even know if they've lost because they're crazy. Here come these people. They've seen him perform miracles. They've seen him raise people from the dead. They've seen him feed the multitude with a little bit of fish and, and some bread. They've seen him walk on water. They've seen him heal the blind. They've seen him heal the leper. They've seen him uh, heal the lame. They've seen him cast demons out of people. They know the Torah. They know the word of God backwards and forwards. They have studied it since they're little, little children. And yet they can't figure out that God is walking among them and that this man Jesus is the Messiah. And if you've got all that education and you've witnessed all those miraculous signs, then I have to reach one conclusion. That is, you're crazy if you can't figure out this is, that Jesus is the Messiah. And so I've come to this principle. Don't argue with crazy people. See, Jesus could have argued with him. He could have made him look foolish. But he decided to shut his mouth and let the Father defend him. You know what he decided? Jesus decided that the resurrection would be a better defense against their claims than any word that would come out of his mouth. There are times when you will have crazy people coming into your life. Some of you are saying, I'm married to the crazy. No, I'm no, don't, don't raise your hand or anything. And they're going to come in. They're going to argue against your dream. They're going to try to shut it down. You just need to decide, I'm not going to argue with crazy people. I'm going to let God defend me. He's going to resurrect the dream. And when they see that dream coming true, that will be proof enough that you're doing the thing that God called you to do. Let God defend you. Let me give you another thought. Number three, don't give voice to the mockers. Don't give voice to the mockers. Look at verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck on the, him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. And as they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene, a man named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified, him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. 
He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he, for he said, I'm the son of God. And in the same way, the robbers who were crucified him also heaped insults on him. All kinds of people are mocking Jesus. Soldiers mock him. The, the crowds mock him. Passers-by mock him. In verse 41, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mock him. And finally, we get all the way to the end. And in the same way, the criminals who were crucified with him are heaping insults on him as well. Listen, you can't give voice to the mockers. From the, from the thieves on either side to the people and the priests who pass in front. When the dream is dim the voice of the mockers start echoing in every corner. Have you ever noticed that? I call it the pile-on principle. When, when the dream is dim, every skeptic and every critic begins to pile on. Well, I knew she couldn't do that. I knew that wouldn't work. I, I, I could have told them that before they ever started. Look at that. I knew he was going to fail. I knew that would happen. I knew he was just a charlatan. I knew it was never going to happen. Here, you know what? When you're on top, everybody cheers for you. Just a few days earlier, they were lining the streets of Jerusalem, shouting, Hosanna! We want you to be our king, Jesus! You're the best! You're the greatest! Woohoo! They didn't say woohoo part. Four days later, they're shouting, crucify him. They want to be on the winning side, so they move from side to side. The crowd is there for the triumphal entry, and now the trial, at the trial, the crowd becomes a mob, and they pile on when the dream is dim. See, when you're on top, everybody cheers, but when you're on the bottom, everybody jeers. What you've got to remember is that you can't give voice in your spirit to the mockers, because I know this, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. But listen, doubt also comes by hearing, but it comes by listening to the voice of the mockers instead of listening to the voice of God. The mocker, can I tell you this? The mocker is somebody who never tries anything. You know, it is really easy to sit back and point a finger as opposed to getting up and doing something, isn't it? Listen, if, if, if it's somebody that's doing something and they are speaking something about me, I want to listen to that. That's, that's accepting constructive criticism. I want to learn from them. I want to learn from what they see. But if it's somebody that's sitting back and has never done anything, is not going to do anything, and wants to make fun of people that are trying to do something, then I can't give voice to that in my spirit. I just close that up. I don't want to listen to that. Because the voice of the mocker breeds doubt in my heart. So I have to decide whose voice I'm going to listen to, and so do you. You've got to hear the voice of God and ignore the voice of the mocker. All right, so if your dream is dim, you say, Pastor, it doesn't look like the dream's going to come about. You've got to maintain your identity. You've got to know who you are. You've got to let God be your defender. Don't try to take up all of it up in your own hands and try to fix it yourself or you'll end up with an Ishmael like Abraham did. Number three, don't give voice to your mockers. Let the word of God fill your, your, your heart with faith so that, you, so that you can move forward. And number four, now, I've got to tell you, this is not one you're going to shout on. Endure the pain. Man, that just feels good, doesn't it? 
I would love to tell you that God will insulate you from everything and you'll never go through any hurt and you'll never go through a trial. But my Bible says, though I, though I may not want to take it out and I, may, and I may not want to read it, I've never seen it on a card. I've never seen it on a coffee, coffee mug. I've never seen it on a poster on the wall. I've never seen it on a bookmark. But it says this, Jesus said, in this world you will have what? Tribulation or trouble, depending on your, 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 your version. Oh, man, that is not the memory verse I'm claiming. You know what I'm saying? In this world, you will have trouble. Jesus didn't stop there, though. He said, in this world, you have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome this world. He said, I've overcome the world, but you're going to have some trouble. James said, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. That's a verse that I don't like because I find it very... I don't know, I'm laughing because I know myself and I'm, I find it very difficult to consider it pure joy when I'm going through trials. You know, I, I don't want to consider it pure joy. I want to consider it pure joy when somebody else goes through trials and I can learn from their mistakes. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes you have to en- just have to endure the pain. It had been a lot easier if Jesus could have been crucified and had no pain. But if you look at what the Bible says in Matthew 27... You see that Jesus and what he endured was painful. You know, we want God to deliver us from the pain. But sometimes, and this is, like I said, this is not what we want to shout about. Sometimes you have to go through it. There are some things in life that you will not get to until you've gone through it. Sometimes the question is, can you stand to be blessed? We want the blessing, but we have to go through some things to get to the other side. I mean, a woman having a baby has to go through it before she gets to it. And there's pain involved. Can I get an amen? Amen. Another reason I'm glad to be a man. I've been in that delivery room. And I said, thank you, Lord. And you know what? Sometimes when the pain comes in life, God's not going to give you an epidural. Sometimes you have to go through the pain. Hear me clearly, the dream that God has for your life at times, it's going to take effort. It's going to take work. It's going to, it's going to involve some blood, sweat, and tears. It's going to involve everybody around you saying, look, it's not happening. Look, it's just not working. And you're going to have to just go through some stuff. You know, I, I told you you wouldn't want to shout about this when it's not an easy truth. But I, I don't want you to start chasing the dream for your life and then come to me and say, Pastor, I'm having some trouble with, with my dream. And you told me that it was all going to go smoothly. I want to tell you something. Dreams hurt every now and then. Yeah. You've got to endure the pain. How, do, how did Jesus endure all the pain that he, that he endured? We can learn from it. Hebrews 12 too. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who... For the joy set before him endured the cross. For every person sitting in this place today, he endured the cross. For every person sitting here today who has found freedom from addiction, he endured the cross. For every person sitting in here today who has found freedom from their sins and an intimate relationship with Jesus, he endured the cross. For every person sitting here today who has seen their family or their marriage healed, he endured the cross. For every person sitting in here today who has passed from death unto life, he endured the cross. Hear me today, there is present power in future hope keep the dream alive in your heart and know why you're going through what you're enduring you know when I was a youth pastor in Twin Falls, Idaho 
uh, way long time ago, just right after the end of the Civil War. You know, <laughs> it's a long time ago. Uh, we went on a few missions trips to El Salvador. In El Salvador, there's a ministry called Castilla del Rey, or be King's Castle in English. And their whole ministry plan involved having groups of teenagers come down to El Salvador uh, throughout the summer, and they would train them and then take them out literally into every corner of the country. And what they did was they had these Spanish songs and dramas all recorded on tape, and they would teach us actions to go along with these, with these songs and with these dramas. So basically, with the songs, what was doing is we were doing aerobics to songs that we didn't, didn't understand, in essence. We're out there doing all these dance moves and stuff, which my daughter can do, but listen, it's just... Here's the thing. I was an out of shape, overweight white guy who had never danced his entire life because I grew up in the Assemblies of God and the rules against that sort of thing. <laughs> I'm out there. I'm trying to learn these moves. I'm doing my best, you know, and, and I, but I want to be a part of what's happening. It's, and not only that, it's the middle of summer. And, and listen, you, you just don't know the kind of heat they have in Central America. And it's just unbelievably hot and horribly humid. And, and at that time, Twin Falls, we were living in a dry climate, so I wasn't used to any humidity at all. And, and so we would stop the bus every now and, th now and then when the time came to participate in the street ministry because they broke us down into two teams because they knew that, that, you know, one team couldn't do it every time. They had to have a break. So when it was your team's turn to get out of the bus and go, and go uh, do your aerobics in the, in the heat and humidity... Uh, when that time came, when it was our turn, I would lumber out there and I'd give it my best. I was exhausted. I was out of breath. I was sweating more than any man should ever sweat in this world. I smelled bad, but that didn't matter because we all stunk to high heaven. Uh, we slept at night on concrete floors at churches, and I'd wake up in the morning hurting more than when I went to bed. My muscles were aching. I'm going to be honest with you. I hated it. Not the ministry. I hated being exhausted. I hated being sore. I hated fighting dehydration. I hated hurting everywhere. And I found myself dreading it when it was my time, turn to get out there. But then I would pray and I'd say, God, I'm in this place because there's somebody who needs to hear about Jesus. There's somebody who needs to be healed. There's somebody that needs to know that you love them. There's somebody that, that needs to hear about Jesus. And so I'm not doing this for me. I'm not even doing this for Castilla del Rey. I'm doing this because somebody needs to know Jesus. And this is how we can reach them. And listen, when you know that what you're doing, when you know why you're going through it, you can endure anything. Let the dream come alive. You can get through anything if you know why you're doing it. Endure the pain. And you'll receive the gain. Number five, wait for the resurrection. Wait for the resurrection. You know what? Saturday is the loneliest day in the crucifixion story. I don't even know what Saturday is called. We've got Good Friday. We've got Maundy Thursday. We've got Ash Wednesday. We've got Resurre Resurrection Sunday. It's, every day gets a name except Saturday. I don't know. Maybe it's Easter Egg Hunt Saturday. I don't know. He's crucified on Friday. He's raised from the dead on Sunday. But Saturday was a day of waiting. How many are living in Saturday? You're waiting for the resurrection of that dream. Let me give you a word if you're waiting. Sometimes after you endure the pain, you just have to wait for the resurrection of the dream to happen. 
Paul said, I'm certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. He also wrote in Galatians, let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. The Bible very clearly tells us right there, if we don't quit, we can't lose. Let me say that again. If, if you don't quit, you can't lose. Turn, turn to your neighbor and say, if you don't quit, you can't lose. Wait for the resurrection. I'm, I'm going to close with this. Mary Beth, if you could come on up. Life is a lot like baseball. See, the way I see it, life is the pitcher, and you're the batter, and the devil thinks he's the umpire. He likes to call you out. He likes to call a strike. And if your life is like mine, it usually goes something like this. You're up there and you're at bat and, and you're ready to go and life throws you a pitch and you swing, but you're way behind it because, because the life threw you a fastball and the devil shouts, strike one! Anybody have a life move at you pretty quickly? You're like, all right, life. Let me set back up here. So life comes back up. And you're up there looking for the fastball. You're ready this time. And the pitch comes in and you swing and miss because it's a changeup. And the devil shouts what? Strike two. Strike two. Yeah. Has life ever changed up anything on you? And you're like, okay, I've had the fastball. I've had the changeup. Who knows what life's going to throw next. But you get up there and you think, at least I'm ready. I, I got it now. And, and you, you spit because it's baseball. So you, gotta, you have to spit. <laughs> And here comes life. And you swing and miss because life throws you a curve. Anybody here ever have life throw you a curveball? And the devil, the umpire, what does he yell? Oh, come on, you can do better than that. What does he yell? Strike three. So he says, strike three, you're out. And what do you do? You know, if you're like most of us, we hang our head. We go back to the dugout. We sit down and we, we, we frown and we moan and we say... Well, sure, it would be nice to be up at bat again. Sure, we'd like to do that. I'd like another shot at that. Now, you do that. You do that unless you attend Restoration Life Church on a regular basis. Because if you go to Res Restoration Life Church, you, know some, you understand something. You understand that at that moment in time, you need to turn to the devil and say, listen here, devil, this is my bat, this is my ball, and my father owns the field. And you look at him and you say, I am not out as long as I don't quit. You don't get to decide when I'm done. God is the one who's in control of all this. And I'll tell you when I'm done, and I am not done until I finish what my father called me to do. And then you say, life fired up again and you swing and miss 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 until finally you make contact and it may not be a home run but at least you're on base at least you're moving forward you're not out until you decide to give up you keep waiting for the resurrection if you don't quit you can't lose somebody stand to your feet in this place and give God praise in this room lift your hands clap your hands all you people and shout unto God with a voice of triumph we thank you, Lord God, today. We thank you, Lord God, that you are a dream-giving God. And we thank you, Lord God, that that dream, even when it grows dim, that we will not give up. We will not quit because we know, God, that you are a God that will not only give the dream, but you will bring the dream to fulfillment. And God, we pray, thank you.
that no matter what the devil says, no matter how, to time, how many times it feels like we strike out, that it's not over until we have finished what you've called us to do. So Lord, in this place today, God, in the name of Jesus, I pray, God, that men in this place who have a heart for Jesus would grow a spine for him. That women in this place who have a heart for Jesus would, 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 would walk with a stiff upper lip and say, it doesn't matter what happens. I'm not done. I'm not done till Jesus till I'm, I've done what he's called me to do. And Lord, I pray that in the name of Jesus, we as a church, as we see the dream you're laying out before us, we see that building across the street, Lord God. We see greater ministry. We see greater outreach. We see making a difference all the way around this world. And some would say, you're, you're not big enough. There's no way you can have a global impact. But God, we will not listen to the voice of the mockers. We will not listen to them. We will listen to you. And God, you've called us for such a time as this. And God, I pray in the name of Jesus that we as a church, as leadership, as, the, as members, as attenders of, of, of this church, God, that we would lock our arms together and say, I can't see how the dream's going to come about, but I know my God is able, and we're going to continue to move forward. And Lord, I pray that you would use us, because we want to make a difference.